Welcome to the Reason Hope podcast. In this podcast, we explore the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith. We seek to show how the central hope found in Jesus Christ is not only rational, but that the Christian worldview makes sense of our experience, our deepest longings, and our intuitions about the world. Thanks for listening, and we hope today's episode is both encouraging and challenging to you, whether you are a believer or a skeptic. Welcome to the Reason Hope Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today. In this Christmas edition of the podcast, we're going to be looking at a very important question surrounding the central event of Christmas, which is Jesus Christ and His coming into the world. So the central question is, why did God become human? For Christians, Christmas is a celebration of the incarnation, which means God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. Or as we'll see, this is God himself taking upon himself a human nature, becoming like uh, the humans he has created in his image. So for those who have grown up Christians or been immersed in Christian teaching from an early age, the idea that God became human in the person of Jesus Christ may not sound very strange, But for those outside of Christian circles, the teaching that God became human in Jesus can sound very strange. Indeed, if you look at Islam, in Islam, the idea that God could become human or anything in his creation is to commit the sin of shirk, which is arguably the most serious offense in Islam. So, It's very clear that even though this is a belief or a teaching that many people take for granted who have been raised in Christian circles or who are at least somewhat familiar with Christianity, not everyone is favorable to this idea. So why did God become human in the person of Jesus? I think this is an important question for both Christians and non-Christians to understand. For Christians, a proper understanding of theology enables us to live for God, and to love Him more. If we don't understand who God is, then we can't really respond to Him rightly. If we don't understand what the Bible teaches about salvation and about the Christian life, then we're not going to be able to honor God with the lives that He's given us. If we lack knowledge, we simply just can't live the way that God intends for us. And for non-Christians, even if you don't believe in Christian claims— It's still important for you to have an accurate understanding of what Christianity teaches if you're going to disagree. And sadly, many who uh, disagree with Christianity today don't really understand or haven't taken the time to understand what it says. Now, of course, that doesn't apply to everyone across the board who disagrees with Christianity, but there are many people out there who will vocalize disbelief or disagreement in Christian claims And once you actually get into a conversation with them and start asking them what they think Christianity teaches, it becomes clear that in very significant ways they have misunderstood Christianity. And so you don't really want to be in that boat if you're going to be a non-Christian who's thoughtful about your disagreement with Christianity. So the question of why did God become human is an extremely important question for all people to consider. 
So it's helpful to actually look at what the Bible teaches about this question. And I think as we get into this, we can see that the Bible has many different things to say about it, but I'm just going to focus on three central ideas here. So the first is that the Bible teaches that this, that is the incarnation, it actually happened in history. So in other words, this is not some purely religious claim that has no connection to the actual events of history. It is a historical claim that the Bible is making about the person of Jesus. So if we go to the book of John, which is one of the four Gospels, and we look at John's prologue, which are about the first 18 verses of the first chapter, John gives us some very important information about the person of Jesus as well as the incarnation. And so I'm just going to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, there's a lot in that passage, but at the very least, it teaches that Jesus, who John calls the Word, has existed from the beginning So the Word, who has existed from the beginning, became a human being. And that's what John means when he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about when Jesus Christ came into the world as a human being. He says, the one who made all things entered into his creation. John says that Jesus Christ has always been. He starts back at the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that the book of Genesis starts with that phrase as well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what John is doing is he is calling our attention back to creation. He's saying that Jesus Christ, the Word, has always existed. And when he came into the world, when the Word became flesh, this is what the incarnation is. This is what happened. God himself stepped into the world that he created in the person of Jesus Christ. If we go to another passage from the Gospel of Matthew, which is another one of the four Gospels, which serves as a historical account of the life and ministry of Jesus, we get information uh, from a different angle about the birth of Jesus Christ. 
in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, this is what Matthew reports about the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. So this passage, while familiar to many people, is showing how the birth of Jesus Christ, the Word becoming flesh, came about through a virgin birth from a woman named Mary who was engaged to a man named Joseph who was from the line of David. If you know anything about Old Testament prophecy, uh, the Messiah was prophesied to come from the line of David. So it's significant that Joseph is a son of David, that he's in the line of David, and that Jesus, uh, that his birth did not come about through human means, but through supernatural means, as Mary was pregnant as a result of the Holy Spirit. So this is a virgin birth. Uh, Jesus was born not out of a sexual union between two human beings. So uh, this is a miraculous birth. And if we go back Uh, If we know anything about John the Baptist as well, Jesus' cousin, the one who prepared the way, Matthew talks about this as well, as also does Luke, and as we saw uh, in the book of John, John refers to John the Baptist as well, and how he was to prepare the way. So these are both supernatural births. John the Baptist uh, had a supernatural birth uh, through Elizabeth, who uh, was barren and could not humanly bear children. Uh, Jesus Christ, his birth came about as a result of supernatural activity. So the conception of Jesus occurred supernaturally according to God's promise. It's interesting, if you notice, Mary is instructed to name the child Jesus. And the reason is because he will save his people from their sins. So in some way, and according to God's purpose, Jesus will achieve the salvation of his people. So these passages from the Gospels, they claim that the birth of Jesus Christ happened in a certain time and place, and that would be first century Bethlehem. They claim that Jesus was born supernaturally, like we said, which would be a virgin birth, and that his birth was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. So that's where we get, this is a promise that God has made for millennia to the Jews, that they will have a Messiah. There will be a son of David who comes to be the true um, savior of their people, the savior of the world, and one who will rule with righteousness and justice. And this person is Jesus Christ, God who has stepped into his creation. Christianity is a historical religion. It roots its claims in the person of Jesus Christ. So what's interesting is that in Christianity, you have the miraculous and the historical. 
They're presented as linked realities so that you can't separate the former from the latter. You can't have historical Christianity. You can't have the historical Jesus without the miraculous and the supernatural. So the Gospels, when taken at face value, they present Jesus Christ as the God-man who was born to save humanity from their sins. So why did God become human? Because this was a fulfillment of prophecy about the Messiah. This was a fulfillment of God's promise to bring salvation to his people, to bring salvation to humanity, to people who are sitting in darkness, in sin, and who are in need of redemption and salvation. So that is the preliminary answer to the question, why did God become human? To save his people. So we've looked at uh, one reason here, how does the Bible answer this question? The Bible teaches that this happened in history, the Incarnation. So it's a historical event. It's rooted in history, which is unusual for religious claims and miraculous claims. It's certainly unusual amongst the world religions. But second, I think we can see the Bible teaches that it was necessary for the salvation of sinful humanity. So we just touched on that. You are to name the child Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Here, we will start to get into the idea that it was necessary for God to become human in in a very important way uh, so that sinful human beings could have a way to be made right with God. Now, if we look at the ministry of Jesus himself, we'll see that he repeatedly made the claim that his purpose in coming was to save sinful human beings. In Mark 10, verse 45, which Mark is another one of the four Gospels, which is a historical account of the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the title Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title to use of himself. And it refers, it, it, it goes back to the Old Testament book of Daniel, where the prophet Daniel has a vision of a divine figure. He says, one like a son of man. And so when Jesus applies this title to himself, it, it carries a lot of weight to it, but it carries the, the, the implicit claim of deity. So it's interesting. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why would Jesus need to give his life as a ransom for many? This is the language of um, sacrificial, the, the, the laying down of his own life for others. And so we, we see this kind of language repeatedly throughout the Gospels. If we go to Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, but he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, that is, his identity as the Messiah. Jesus said, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. So this is a prediction that Jesus gave about his death. He says that his death is necessary. So it's necessary that he suffer many things. It's necessary that he be rejected by the Jewish leadership and then be killed. And then he makes a prediction of his resurrection when he says, and be raised the third day. 
So here, Jesus is claiming that his death is necessary and his resurrection is necessary. And that is key to his identity as the Messiah. If we go to Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So, just as Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, another way he describes this as seeking and saving the lost. And who are the lost? That's us. That's sinful humanity. As the prophet Isaiah said, We all like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. If we go to Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus is discussing with the religious leadership. They're questioning him, why he's spending time with people who were sort of outcasts in society, people who were uh, tax collectors and prostitutes, and the religious leadership is coming to him and questioning why Jesus is even spending time with people uh, like that. And Jesus says, says, when Jesus heard this, he told them, that is, the religious leaders, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that he came to seek those who were lost. He's using kind of medical imagery to make the same point. So just as Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, he came to seek those who are spiritually sick and who understand that they're spiritually sick. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous, that is the self-righteous, people who think that they don't need him, people who think that they are righteous in and of themselves. Jesus didn't come to call those kinds of people. He came for the people who recognize their need for him, who recognize that they're sinners. So there are many more passages in the Gospels that we could go to to look at what Jesus said about his own mission. But these four are sufficient to show right now that Jesus repeatedly made the claim that his purpose in coming was to save sinful human beings. That is his primary mission. If we look at what the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter said about the death of Jesus, this is also significant because they were early leaders in the church. They were apostles. They were people who had witnessed Jesus after his resurrection. They claim to have seen him after he was killed, and they claim to have seen him alive, raised from the dead. They were people who were directly commissioned by Jesus himself to carry on uh, his teaching, to teach people about him, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the, the great commission that Jesus gave before he ascended to heaven. So what does Paul say about Jesus' death, he says a lot about it. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. So that's pretty clear. Paul is saying that, that this is the central mission of Jesus. He came into the world to save sinners, and then he identifies himself as the worst of them. Probably because he's thinking back over his legacy of persecuting the church, uh, having Christians thrown in prison, and uh, presiding over their deaths in many cases, as we see with Stephen in the beginning of Acts. So 
Paul's aware of his own sin and his need for God's mercy, as all of us should be. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, Paul says this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Paul says a lot there, but he says Jesus died for the ungodly. Jesus died for those who did not want anything to do with him. He didn't die for people who were basically good and just needed a little help. He died for wicked people. He died for people who wanted absolutely nothing to do with him and who were happy to continue living in their sin. Jesus died for those people, and that is you and me. And we are justified by the blood of Jesus, his sacrifice on our behalf. We are saved through him from the wrath that we deserve. We used to be enemies of God, but now we've been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. And so this is why we boast. We boast in the mercy of God through Jesus Christ to us that we don't deserve. So there's a lot there about what the death of Jesus means and what it accomplishes. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 24-25, he says this, He, that is Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter says Jesus actually bore our sins in his own body when he was being crucified, that he took our punishment upon himself. He died in our place. And when we trust in him and what he's done for us, we die to sins. We die with him and we are raised to new life so that we can live for righteousness. We are healed by his wounds and we're like sheep who have gone astray, who need to be rescued. But Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He is the good shepherd, as Psalm 23 describes. So Peter also says there's a lot here about how the death of Jesus accomplishes our salvation. It's why his death was necessary for our salvation. And finally, if we go to the Old Testament, one of the most important prophecies concerning the death of Jesus is from Isaiah chapter 53, and I'll just read verses 5 through 6. It says, But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So, 
prophecy about Jesus Christ 700 years before Jesus' death took place, saying that Jesus was pierced, he was crushed, our punishment was laid upon him. We've all gone astray like sheep, we've all turned to our own way, but the Lord has punished Jesus for the iniquity of us all. Jesus voluntarily took our punishment upon himself so that we might be reconciled to God. So that's the second point. The Bible teaches it was necessary. Jesus' death, Jesus' incarnation, God became human because this was necessary for the salvation of sinful humanity. Now the third major point here that the Bible teaches is that Jesus had to be both fully God and fully human in order to provide atonement for our sins. If we go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, it says this, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who were tempted. So this passage teaches that by taking on a human nature, Jesus is able to make atonement for our sins, and to be our merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus had to have a human nature because a human had to live before God and fulfill the law. A human had to live before God and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, had to live a perfect life. No one can live a perfect life except the Son of God. So by taking upon himself a human nature, he does what we could not do. He pleases God perfectly, lives a perfectly righteous life when we couldn't do it. And then, after doing that, he takes our punishment upon himself. So he fulfills the requirements of the law. He's punished in our place, taking our punishment upon himself. And then he rises on the third day, defeating sin and death. So he destroys, as it says here, Jesus shared in these, that is, flesh and blood, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Jesus Christ sets us free from the fear of death. He sets us free from the power of death. And that's because he is God and man and what his life and death and resurrection accomplishes on our behalf, destroys the power of the devil in our lives. Another passage is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, and it says this, When the time came to completion, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. So this says, Jesus was sent in the perfect time. The perfect time 
in the perfect place in history in accordance with God's plan. He was born as a human being, as the language in this passage says, born uh, of a woman, and he lived a perfect life fulfilling the requirements of the law, born under the law. So Jesus was born of a woman, so he has a human nature. He was born under the law, as all human beings are. And this was so that he might redeem those under the law, which is all humanity, and that he might bring them into God's family. That's what the language of adoption is here, uh, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The idea is that we are not naturally a part of God's family. We are uh, outside of the family of God. We are in a the, the kingdom of darkness. We are under the dominion of Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, the prince who, who has temporary influence in this world. And when we come to know God in Jesus, he brings us out of that domain of darkness and into his kingdom of light. And so this language here about Jesus being born of a woman, being born under the law so that he might redeem those under the law, uh, and then that leads to us being adopted into the family of God when we embrace him and give our lives to him. So this is essential. Jesus could not have accomplished this unless he was fully God and fully man. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says here clearly that those who are in Jesus, that is, those who have given their lives to him, are no longer under condemnation for sin. Outside of Jesus, we stand condemned before God for our sins against him, for the things that we have done that, that are against his, his good law and his commands. But those who are in Jesus are not under this condemnation any longer because of what he's done. We had no ability to justify ourselves before God or to cleanse ourselves from our sin. We have absolutely no ability to do that on our own. No amount of good works that we do can uh, wipe our, our, our guilt clean, can wash us clean. But again, Jesus lived the perfect life under the law and fulfilled it. He took upon himself our condemnation so that we could be forgiven and empowered to live lives that honor God. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 5-6, through 6, the Apostle Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all a testimony at the proper time. So here we have that language again of this occurred at the perfect time. We have the language of Jesus giving himself as a ransom. We have the language of Jesus being fully human, the man Christ Jesus, and that Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity. He can do this because he is fully God and fully man. 
he can take upon himself the the full weight and the full wrath that our sins deserve because he's God. And he can live a perfect life before God, before his Father, and, and in such a way that justifies all those who trust in him because he's fully human. Jesus is both fully God and fully human, and this is why he's able to be the mediator between God and man. If Jesus was just God and he never took upon himself a human nature, then he could not have fulfilled this role. If Jesus Christ was just a human being, then his death would not have accomplished atonement for the sins of his people. He had to be both, and that's why Paul says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and humanity, and that's Jesus. One of the early teachers of the church was a man named Athanasius, and he wrote a work called On the Incarnation, which is a great exposition. It's, it's, it's a great teaching on the importance of the incarnation, the, the fact that God became a human in the person of Jesus Christ, and why this was necessary. And Athanasius says a whole lot about this, but I just want to read a small paragraph of how he sort of responds to the question about why was it necessary for, for God to become a human being in the person of Jesus? What, what, what was so important about this? So here's what he said. He says, quote, So the word of God came himself in order that he, being the image of the Father, the human being in the image might be recreated. It could not again have been done in any other way without death and corruption being utterly destroyed. So he rightly took a mortal body that in it death might henceforth be destroyed utterly and human beings be renewed again according to the image. For this purpose, then, there was need of none other than the image of the Father. End quote. What Athanasius is basically saying there is that we have the Word of God. If you remember from John chapter 1, John talked about uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that's Jesus. So Athanasius is saying the Word of God himself came into human history. This is the Word of God, Jesus, who is the, the image of the Father. If you read throughout the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, uh, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus is the exact image of the Father. Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we see God the Father. So, the Word of God came. He's the image of the Father. Um, human beings were originally created in the image of God. Despite the fact that, that we have fallen into sin, we are still made in the image of God. And so what Athanasius is saying here is that Jesus, as the Word of God, as the image of the Father, he stepped into human history. He took upon himself a human nature. He lived a righteous life before God. And by his death and his resurrection, he is able to fully restore the image of God in human beings. That doesn't mean that we lack the image of God if we're not Christians, um, but it means that we don't have the spiritual life that we were originally intended to have. We're, we're dead to God apart from Jesus. We don't have that spiritual life in us. That's why Jesus talked about how if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. You must be born from above. 
uh, and that this is a work of God. He talks about this in John chapter 3. So Athanasius is basically saying that Jesus had to take upon himself a human nature so he could recreate uh, the full image of God in humanity. That Jesus restores us to our original purpose when he restores us to our relationship with himself and with the Father. And that if he was not God, and if he was not fully human, then this could not have been accomplished. So what does all this mean for us today? I think it means uh, a lot of things, but I, I would say consider the full scope of Jesus' work this Christmas. I think we can oftentimes focus mainly on his birth around Christmas time, and I think that's certainly appropriate. We should certainly focus on his birth, but we need to reflect upon why he came and why he alone provides atonement for our sins. And I think we also need to be reminded of the severity of sin and the great mercy and love of God. We can't fully appreciate the great love and mercy of God until we understand the depths and the gravity of our own sin. Sin is serious. We live in a world that sees sin as an outdated idea. And many people think that, that it's irrelevant and that it no longer applies because we're basically good people. But the Bible goes against this idea. It does not teach that we're basically good. Uh, it says that we're in desperate need of God's mercy. And I think it doesn't take long for us to reflect upon our own lives uh, to see that we're not basically good. We cannot clean ourselves or make ourselves right with God. But God, who's rich in mercy, has made a way for us to be forgiven. And he's done this out of his love and his kindness for us. So be reminded of the severity of sin that, that in order for us to be forgiven, it took the death of the Son of God. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we are reminded of the severity of sin. But we're also reminded of God's great mercy and love. And I think the third thing is that you need to consider if you personally responded to him. Trusting in Jesus is much different than merely believing in him. The book of James talks about how even the demons believe in God. Even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't follow him. They don't trust in him. They don't love him. So mere belief is not what matters. It is trusting in Jesus. It's giving your life to him. It's, it's, uh, it's agreeing with him that you are sinful and that you need his forgiveness. It means to turn from your sin and from living for yourself. It means you follow him. You're no longer following the world. You're no longer following yourself. You're following him. So embrace his call today. He is better than anything this world offers, and he alone provides the cleansing that you and I need. And without him, we stand condemned before God for our sins. This is why God became human, to make a way, to provide a way of salvation. This is why the focus at Christmas is not just on the birth of Jesus. It's everything the birth of Jesus is a fulfillment of and what it represents and what it's leading us towards all those who put their trust in him he gives them eternal life and the hope of eternity with him john chapter 1 verses 12 through 13 says but to all who did receive him that is jesus he gave them the right to be children of god to those who believe in his name 
who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Receive Jesus Christ today. Receive him this Christmas. And remember that there is a reason for hope in Jesus Christ.